Hello friends and welcome back to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for the second half of our look at season 11. <gasps> Come on, Agarol old chap. That's no way to greet an old friend. <gasps> you remember me, surely. <laughs> I don't think he does, Doctor. He missed me and I used to be the greatest of friends. Agarol! Agarol! So, let's get to it, shall we? Monster of Peladon. Jacob, would you by any chance <laughs> like to start us off? I one? will, yes. I feel um, like you, you might have some things to say. Oh yes, I've got things to say. Well, it's too long. Mm. It's plodding, dull, but more importantly than that, it's completely condescending. So it makes some attempt to engage with contemporary issues, specifically the miners' strike, which will eventually lead to Edward Heath calling a general election on the basis of who governs Britain, an election which he will lose. And it totally fails to get to the heart of the issue and, in fact, is deeply insulting in the way in which it portrays the mining community. Well, in the metaphorical sense it portrays them anyway. Yeah, um, I have absolutely nothing good to say about this. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, we'll dig into all of that, obviously, in some detail. Bethan. I mean, just on a sort of basic assessment of it, I don't think I'm as I, I don't think I'm as negative on the experience of watching it necessarily as as Jacob has expressed, but it's also not incredibly inspiring mm. either way, and um, a lot of it's quite farcical with people going in and out of doors very close to each mm. other, yeah, which makes it kind of difficult to take anything. To take it like quite seriously, mm. and there's a weird sort of disparity in quality in how well some of the like fight scenes are choreographed, mm. because the scene with the Doctor fighting Etis is sort of fine, like in the cave, that's not that's that's all right, but then oh, there's a bit. Think? I think it's okay compared to mm. there's a bit where the Queen sort of stumbles or something. I can't remember what exactly it mm. was that I was referring to. I think it's. Maybe when they're tricking somebody, but there's some bits that are like really bad. Yeah, really, oh, really bad. I know the bit you mean. It's like yeah, she. Oh, I can't even remember what actually happens, but mm. I do know the bit you mean. Yeah, I all I remember is it was sort of ridiculous, but yeah. So it's a bit odd. Yeah, I feel like I have more sort of specific stuff to say. But it's basically difficult to for me to say anything particularly like authoritative about my feelings because it's so there's not a lot of substance to what's going on necessarily. Yeah. And it's just quite confusing to watch because there's different I think it's supposed to be showing difficult interplay between different factions and stuff. Mm. But it just ends up being a lot of back and forth. Mm. Sarah Jane gets captured by everyone at some point but some people multiple times Mm -hmm. and 
Alpha Centauri is there as well. Hmm. It seemed the advisable course of action, Doctor. Eckersley agreed. Yes, well, Eckersley should have had more sense. For some reason, of all the things in this episode, yeah, one thing that really stands out to me, and that really stood out to me in particular, re-watching it most recently, is... Because I had just um, recently watched Curse of Peladon. Curse of Peladon. Um, actually, for the first time. And what baffled me, having watched that, is... Why on earth, having seen that story, would you choose to not only bring back Alpha Centauri, but actually expand their role? They are essentially a major character in this story. To the point that you have, like, quite a lot of shots just focusing on that big bulbous eye that does not convey any emotion whatsoever. Um, so I feel like that's almost a microcosm of some of the problems affecting this story because, like, this has a reputation as being, like, the worst Pertwee story, which I think is probably deserved on a number of levels. Not least because, alongside all of the other kind of problems that it has going on, the, like, weird kind of dead-end plotting, the quite significant political problems of representation that it's got going on, even like at its worst, the uh, the Pertwee era, the the or I suppose more accurately the Barry Letts era, is generally at least competent in the way it approaches things, in the way it puts things together. Things like the fight scenes, they're they can be of variable quality, but generally like they'll be at least watchable. But here, even that, for maybe the only time in the entire era, it just falls away. A lot of the action is really static and it doesn't kind of it doesn't have the fluidity that it does in a lot of other stories including like stories either side of it to be perfectly fair like it's weirdly directed where like there's there are bits where they're kind of shot through bits of caves like through some stalagmites for some reason and it's kind of all it's doing is just obscuring what's going on it's really really strange and this is not unusual but in itself but the acting is on its own plane at certain times. Um, I mean, my, my favourite instance of this, and this is not even something I dislike about the story, this is probably quite the contrary, but my favourite example has to be Etis, who is, like, I've been likening him to the, um, the priest with the dramatic voice from Father Ted. Yes, 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 listen. Ted, were you asking for a dramatic, exciting voice? No, he said boring. He wanted a boring voice. In that case, you must excuse me for my impetuous interruption. Because <laughs> that's pretty much the way he delivers all of his lines. And my favourite bit is when he's like, I'm destroying the holy mountain to appease the spirit of Agadol. <laughs> it's like somebody, I think it's um, Gebek, asks him, like, in reasonably normal delivery what are you doing and that's his response that's gonna be my explanation for everything now because it's just it encapsulates something yeah this this whole story is just filled with stuff like that including the great line on peladon we have a saying (laughs) (laughs) if you can't stand the heat stay out of the mines i mean (laughs) If, I mean, if we're doing favourite lines, my favourite is um, in, like, episode four or five, when Sarah thinks the Doctor is dead. She says something along the lines of, like, I can't believe he's dead. He was the most alive person I ever knew. 
Like there's a sli- some kind of sliding scale of being alive, which he has just suddenly slid right down. That's like um like like GCSE drama where she might be about to like dramatically light or extinguish a candle in a monologue mm. that she'd written. <laughs> not nothing against Liz Lynn's performance. It's just yeah. it's not no. of the most. Um, if anything, she's like. Uh, I mean, there's not much you can do with that. Line, no, is there? Really <laughs> like, uh, I mean, throughout this story in particular, poor Liz Layton is gamely trying to make the most of what she was given, as she did in Deaths of the Daleks. Actually, didn't mention that, but like in one of her most thankless roles that she ever gets, she has to try and try and make something of all of this negotiation with a giant bulbous head that gives no expression and like. Her like weirdly patronizing uh, explanation of women's lib to the the queen that we talked about, <laughs> just endlessly getting captured and recaptured and then running away and then getting captured by someone else and <sighs> I don't outright hate this story. I will say that because I think there is potential. There are bits in it that are actually have some dramatic potential, especially in actually the second half. I think the first half is really bad. The second half, from episodes four to six, are weirdly, once the Ice Warriors show up, are less terrible. There's actually a really nice bit in episode six where Eckersley is kind of trying to make a uh, break for it with the Queen. Talira, is that her name? Yeah, I yes. think so, yeah. And they come across, like, a, a cavern full of bodies, full of bodies of, like, soldiers and miners and Ice Warriors... And there's a moment of him like surveying the carnage of what he's done. And then he just runs on. And nothing comes of it. And it's almost like a microcosm of like what could have been. Speaking of being dramatically inert, I think it's... And again, looking back at Curse of Peladon. Like one of... Well, I don't want to keep emphasizing Peladon. Curse of Peladon. Like one of the central kind of innovations of that story is that... The Ice Warriors are not the villains. And it's actually a really interesting idea. It's a, I don't love Curse of Peladon, but I, I think that's an interesting idea that, like, these creatures that we have been kind of taught to think of as, as villains in every other story by this writer, in fact, have actually turned over a new leaf. They're, like, they're kind of, they're engaging with, like, galactic politics. And even the Doctor is kind of prejudiced against them, but is shown to be wrong. And, like, that's an interesting complication of, like, the idea of the monster and of the alien in Doctor Who. Mm. This story, then, nah, they're just bad again. Like, it, it kind of goes out of its way to be like, oh, no, no, this is just a rogue faction. The rest are presumably still fine. But for from what we see on screen, which is all that we can really go by, they're just back to exactly what they were before. So it's a weird kind of walking back of an interesting idea from the story that it's a, a sequel to. I haven't seen Curse of Peladon, so I didn't have any of this context, but I instantly identified from the statue of Agdor that he was my friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was glad when he showed up and uh, sad when, you know, mm-hmm. R.I.P. There's not a whole lot of him, actually, given that the story is named after him. He's No, because he's not the real monster, um, oh, I don't. Know. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the real monster was society. <laughs> this is because uh, I always get confused between curse and monster. Hmm. This one's where Pertwee does the singing, isn't it? 
He does it in both. He does it in both. Well, yeah. that is one thing that I like about this episode. Oh, good. I like Pertwee singing. Mm, singing God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. <laughs> but with, like, Venusian lyrics. <laughs> I uh, I also... I kind of liked some of the things. Mostly I liked Agador. Um, mm-hmm. What I did kind of like is the fact that... Um, I thought it was a bit weird at first when the Doctor shows up and nobody knows who he is even though he was there... Not that long ago. It's, a, 50, it's years, 50 years, it? yeah. But then I thought about it, and on reflection, I kind of like that as an alternative to some of the ones, particularly in the new series, where they're like, oh, the legends told yeah, yeah. that the Doctor would come, or that the Doctor has been the here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it's kind of refreshing in a way to see a story where they're like, oh, who are you? Sorry, no, my dad didn't really... No, sorry. <laughs> like they just don't really remember what happened. Yeah, it's like it's a it's an interesting one because that kind of comes out of the fact that um, at the end of Curse of Peladon, the amazingly imaginatively named King Peladon says, "Oh, the memory of this day will be wiped from the historical records." But they also have this idea of, "Oh, the Doctor is a person who saved us." Mm-hmm. So it's like he is this legendary figure, but it's. There's no specificity to him. Um, so it is a kind of interesting sort of middle ground there, I think. I also kind of appreciate the attempt with Alpha Centauri to represent an alien creature that looks very different from the kind of humanoid yes, forms yes. that we often get. I don't think it necessarily works that well, but I feel like they tried to give him a sort of different shape to what the other alien creatures often mm. have and I think it was interesting that they were using a a female voice actor to represent a character that everyone sort of refers to as mm. him and I think he's actually both is it's... yes the in Curse of Peladon there is um the I, I think that the doctor uses the the word hermaphroditic mm. um but yet yeah, but also says um refer to him as he yeah, so I think, like, I admire the fact that they were clearly trying to do something very different. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. I do think that the lack of expression in the head is an issue. Mm. I think that the voice, when there's a lot of it, and combined with an episode in which Sarah Jane screams a lot, <laughs> is not the most um, pleasant viewing, ex- well, listening experience, shall mm. I say. But, you know, they tried. Also, the thing that you told me about the director, is it? Satitude to Alpha Century? It was the director of um, Curse. Yeah. Although I think um, he might be the same director for this one. I can't actually remember now. Well, this, which we'll we'll get Kieran to reveal, has unfortunately, (laughs) tragically warped my view of Alpha Century forever. Kieran. I don't think I know about this. Oh, really? Okay. Um, So, there was... Concern among um, various people involved with Curse of Peladon that Alpha Centauri looked overly phallic as a large kind of vaguely cylindrical but curved at the top creature uh, with a veiny head and one eye. And so the director, uh, who I believe was Australian, which is germane to this comment, came along and just looked at it and is reported to have said, yeah, it looks like a prick. And so they put like um, they put like the, the sort of cloak around Alpha Centauri, 
And he came, looked at it again and says, yep, looks like a prick in a shower curtain or something like that. Again, I'm going to quote Johnny Spandrel because he refers to do them as um, cock in a frock, Alpha Centauri, which amused me immensely when I came across it earlier today. He, um, it's Lenny Main, isn't it, the director? Lenny Main, yes, um, you're right. He went missing, actually, I believe. I'm sure that's what Tom Baker said. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, he was just on his boat and like he just disappeared. Oh. No one ever saw him again. That's definitely true, and not just something Tom Baker said. Well, <laughs> I've heard it from Tom Baker. I don't know if I've read it anywhere else. He had a woman's I will boat. Check. <laughs> but Tom Baker certainly says it anyway. <laughs> to me, Tom Baker is just his character in that one episode of Blackadder. Mm. Second. <laughs> you have a woman's purse. <laughs> I'll wager that purse has never been used as a rowing boat. I'll wager it's never had 16 shipwrecked mariners tossing in it. Yes, well, right again, Ron, I must say, when it comes to tales of courage, I can say I'm going to have to keep my mouth shut. Oh, you have a woman's mouth, <laughs> I'll wager that mouth never had to chew through the side of a ship to escape the dreadful spindly killer fish. Once again in this story, we have talk of martial law. We also have... Um, a fraught political situation where you've got like hardliners and you've got moderates you've got groups that are like in groups within groups you've got a kind of a government group and then like a sort of rebel group and I tried I tried to put this together into some kind of uh, another like troubles related allegory which is why my notes contain the, the phrase is Commander Azaxir the Ice Warrior Ian Paisley <laughs> as the leader of like a rogue faction within the court sort of establishment position? Um, it's not loud enough. No, he's really not. And who is, to be fair? <laughs> but it's just, it's ultimately there's too many weird things going on. It's too much, just a mess, um, politically speaking, for me to even make that allegory at all work. But I want you to know that I tried. <laughs> at most you could say that like uh, I was trying to put this together on a timeline because obviously the radicals like the radical miners kind of managed to get weapons that they shouldn't have I was trying to put this together on a, on like an IRA timeline I think I'm pretty sure this is before they started being supplied from Libya but they would have had weapons from like Irish America at this point so there's something going on there. But again, it's too kind of too piecemeal, too too messy for me to really make anything work. So I tried to make it not about the minor strike on the on the hopes that that would be a bit more palatable. But it didn't quite work. When was it? Life of Brian released. Uh, 79. No! I just compare it to Life of Brian a lot because they have the kind of soldiers in short skirts chasing yeah. around these yeah, groups yeah. of uh, dissidents who have differing ideologies but are quite <laughs> similar. And so I started off thinking that the miners were the people's front of Judea and mm. then it all just spiraled beautifully out from there and I mm. was enjoying myself. There's some weird costuming decisions, actually. There's there the short skirts, but there's also... The miners seem to have a lot of, like, leather 
strap things. Yeah. Um, They've got like, some of them do seem to be wearing chaps. Yeah, they are, yeah. And it's just, I just want to know what the what the thoughts were. Also, I want to know if the miners are supposed to be a different species to the other people on... Oh. Are you ready, Jacob? Mm. Because, like, I really don't get it. Like, are they supposed to be a different species It's or not, not said outright, but it kind of seems to be implicit. Yeah. Um, and even if it's... It's almost worse if it's not meant to be the case in some ways. Yeah. Because they do... They look so different. Yeah. And like... The badger hair. Yeah. And like... I mean, one of my first notes is... At least to the miners don't have comedy regional accents. I had to revise that slightly as the story went on. Because they don't have like uniform accents. And so you don't get the kind of... um, Mark of the Rani-esque kind of weird northern accent. Well inverted commas, northern accent thing going on. Mm. But um, that's because they, they're they like blood acts spread across an entire group of people. They're kind of like, they're, they've got a lot of things going on. Etis, as I say, is like the dramatic priest from Father Ted. I also came up with a theory, actually, that he might be like, he might have decided to deliver all of his lines as if he was talking to someone at the back of the studio. Gebek. Gebek, I think think has kind of a vaguely northern thing going on but it's like vaguely northern rather than like anything more specific and to be honest i can't really remember what the rest are they didn't particularly stand out to me Mm. so there's only two women on peladon yes one of whom doesn't speak one of them doesn't speak and was the played by the director's wife so i'm not sure what her role is i was wondering at first if they are like bees and there is only one female the queen bee uh but then there is another woman so that threw that theory out of the water and now i'm wondering well it's even it's even weirder because in curse of peladon uh king peladon wants to get it on with joe oh yeah, i forgot about that yeah played by patrick trouton's son yes yes so Mm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> are the women in? Are there any women in Curse of Peladon? I don't think so. And actually, yeah, I think it's, it's um, Joe, it? it's uh, Tat Wood suggests that that's why he's so taken with Joe because she's just literally the first woman he's seen. So are they humans? No, mm. surely not. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. No. I don't know what's going but on. yeah, I find it strange that the that they made all the miners look noticeably different to the. Mm. ruling people but they don't really clarify if that's there's not there's not really any indication of why that is other than just i don't know to signify they're sort of different that's what i feel is deeply problematic about this episode it's just like the possibility that the you know that all sort of implication the minds are a completely different species and the and the kind of the homogenizing of them in that sense, you know, like they're all making them all look the same with this ridiculous hairdo. Hmm. Made me really want um, Mint Humbugs. Yeah, yeah. Made me really <laughs> want to rewatch uh, Wind in the Willows. Yeah. A specific one mm. where Badger's hair is like those hair. It is very similar. Yeah. In the like 90s film version. Yeah. I that. yeah. Which has. Lots of Monty Python people in it, which mm. brings my 
It's embarrassing. It's all, it's, all around. It's, true. it's all a web across time. A web getting ready for Pelham Oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I feel like there's just so much going on in mm. Peladon that I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah. Also, I think this is a good sign of how we how the overlap is quite strange between this and the previous story. Because I remember you making the comment before I'd watched either of them about miners being a different species yeah, yeah. and so when we watched death of the daleks i thought you'd been talking about uh, that one yeah because there's kind of two kinds of exelons as well as well as them being a different species to the humans or the daleks mm, yeah um then it was only when i watched monster of peladon that i realized of course that you must have been referring to this one because it's more yeah it the comment makes more sense for this but it could still work as a comment on yeah, the other yeah. story yeah, yeah. so it's very bizarre I think another big problem with it as well is the fact that they're portrayed as kind of backwards and superstitious mm. and the, 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 the entire strike is effectively caused by like, you know, superstition in terms of like this, mm. this uh, you know, the figure of Agador has appeared and they're all terrified they run off. And it's mm. like that, comp- because, one- because it's a clear attempt to make a metaphor or like a, a connection between the minor strike that is ongoing and this, it's mm. a real issue because mm. it basically divorces the whole thing from the material reality of what is, what is actually happening, which is that the miners at the time think that their work is extremely dangerous and they should be being paid properly for overtime. Mm. It's a pay dispute. It's also a dispute about the government and the plans that they've got for the mining industry, which, mm. as we know later on, will be catastrophic mm. uh, when the stories finally do get their way. So, yeah, it just... Oh, it's it just totally, totally wrong. <laughs> also, one of uh, Sarah Jane's advice points to the elites, the ruling yeah. people at one point is, you need to show the miners that the progress from the Federation will be good for them. Oh, yeah. Um, as if, like, I don't know, it just seemed really patronising. And mm. yeah. they have this sort of semi-resolution at the end where it's as if, t- where she says... Saying that a minor can't do something is just like saying that a girl can't do something. And I just don't even really know what to make of that. Sarah Jane, intersectional feminist. (laughs) I feel like it brings me to the culmination of my social contract theme that I have been following through. So no one's going to have to hear me witter on about this after this, which is good. Because, yeah, you're right, there's that kind of like quite patronising... You just have to talk to each other, mm. and it will all be solved. You know that's that's kind of what seems to be happening, really. And then you know, Gebek, it's Gebek, isn't it? The yeah. one who's sort of moderate and okay. Mm-hmm. We can deal with him. Yeah, he sort of like advises the queen and stuff. You know, mm. like basically, I think it's it's interesting because it it kind of allows me to excavate why the social contract has been a theme, which is. I think there's a lot of talk at this time about the idea that the dispute can be solved with some kind of social contract to the point that the Labour Party, when they get into government, do something called the social contract with the miners where, you know, basically like they accept wage restraint in exchange for the repeal of Heath's Industrial Relations Act and freezes on rent increases and things like that. And whilst Labour haven't yet been elected when this is broadcast or written, it's all in, again, in Labour's programme for 1973, hmm. so the year before. 
Uh, and it's already being talked about amongst by you know all kinds of political commentators and actors. It starts as something from the radical left about increasing state intervention and you know forms of economic democracy, and it mutates into something that isn't that. That is basically labor labor government brokering agreements with the miners, and I think. You see here the reassertion of a liberal vision of the state uh, in terms of representative forms of governance and away from the more direct forms that I'm talking about that are kind of starting to emerge. And that's why you get Gebek being put into this position Hmm. and... This whole thing of well, you just have to talk to one another, and it completely, completely misses the point of uh, of of the very issue that it's supposedly trying to get to the heart of. Yeah, it just just baffles me to be honest. But yeah, so ultimately, like there seems to be in this idea of talking to one another, the idea of in order for society to function properly, you have to give something away. And that's precisely what is happening in this episode. It's not very good. <laughs> uh, one thing I will say from for Monster of Peladon mm. versus Death to the Death to the Daleks, I think Monster of Peladon has been a lot more interesting to talk about yes. potentially. Yeah, that's true. There's more weird stuff. There's more stuff going on, and more weirder stuff going on. And mm. it's a mess, but you know, at least it's an entertaining. At least it's trying to do something. Yeah. At least, well, no, it's not necessarily always entertaining to watch, mm. but it's yeah. kind of interesting to chat about. And there are some bits that are quite enjoyable, if not for necessarily the the reasons intended. I yeah. did when we rewatched it. Enjoy it more than I was expecting to. Mm. I will say that mm. uh, because I, I, I mean, I had seen it before, but I, I had this idea in my head of it being like the worst Pertwee story and having all this kind of all this stuff about the miners that that you've been talking about uh, going on, and that's all very true. And I do, like I was saying before, I do think it kind of unusually for a story of this era, it does kind of fail at a basic level of competence. But there are still things going on. There are still... It still has enjoyable, like, moments and stuff. Pertwee and Liz Layden are as watchable as they ever are. Mm. You, uh, yeah, this is this is the kind of faint praise I'm reduced to. Like, the Doctor who is very good <laughs> is very good. Uh, Agador is there. Agador is yeah, there, yeah. that is always good. Um, Agador, door, door, push pineapple, shake the tree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the old him has it. Yes, yes. We have a saying on I didn't realise that people have this as the worst Pertwee story, but I think if it is the worst, then that's not as bad as it gets for some Oh, God, no. No, I think it's... For the worst of an era, it's doing okay. Yeah, I mean, like, I think... Almost every other Doctor has 
a story that is more just basically incompetent than this one is mm. on on various levels. Like Colin Baker arguably has nothing but. There are things going on in this story. Uh, it's a, it's the thing I al- I always come back to. There are ideas. I think they're misconceived ideas in many ways, yeah. but there are ideas being worked through. Mm-hmm. There are kind of it's aiming for something. Yeah. It's not like something like the twin dilemma where it's just a car crash. Yeah. Uh, and you just don't know what's going on at any level. It's not that bad. It's not. I would even put it above something like Underworld, which is unfathomably dull. This still feels like it goes on for about six years. I can't remember Underworld. Actually. Neither can I. It's really weird. I've like I've seen it, but it's like that. Like hour and a half was just cut out of my life entirely. Yeah. Because I just don't know what happens in it. <laughs> From what I understand, seems to be kind of common. But anyway, yeah, like it's not always memorable for good reasons, but there are at least memorable ideas and images in here. Yeah, I think I think we can finish talking about it. Yeah. Uh, cuz I I feel like we've we've come to the end of our um what we want to say about it. <laughs> so, it's time to get off the mandala and into <laughs> <laughs> Planet of the Spiders. They don't say it like Mandala, though, do no, they? They say Mandala. Yeah, something. well, Pertwee says Mandala. I don't think anyone else says it. In... Ah, the, the Lotus Prayer. <laughs> See, um, I didn't realise that that was a real prayer. Yeah, and it now is. I... Well, um, I, I think prayer is the wrong... I think it is called the Lotus Prayer, but, like, it's mantra is kind of more the, uh. the term, because Buddhism. But, yes... Yeah, I'll go first in this one, actually. Um, what is it all about, Kira? <laughs> to to power the question. <laughs> that, is, that is Sarah Jane's question, certainly. So I was actually saying earlier, off mic, that Planet of the Spiders was one of my first Pertwee stories, weirdly enough. And I don't quite know why. Um, I think because I liked Tom Baker so much that like even one of the Pertwee stories I managed to track down had to be like the one with him in it for five seconds. And not saying anything, or even being conscious. I assume he was conscious when they filmed the scene. Um, yeah, so. He had no idea the cameras were rolling. <laughs> Barry Letts just came up behind him and knocked him out oh, yeah. before he did it. So yeah, this was like one of my first um, Pertwee stories, one of my first experiences of Pertwee. And it's kind of fitting in some ways, because this is like very deliberately, very pointedly like the culmination of the era. It's like awash with continuity. In a way that I think no story ever really is again until maybe the McCoy era. In terms of like that it's clearly setting out to finish up an arc. As for what I actually think of it, which I'm slightly circling around for some reason. I like it. With all of the reservations that that tone of voice <laughs> suggests. Um, there is some dodgy as hell stuff going on in here. Which we will get into, I have no doubt at all. Um, it's also, I almost feel like it's fitting that um, the story that is like the culmination of poetry should be too long and, cu- and quite padded out because what more fitting way to celebrate the era is there? So I don't know if that's even necessarily a negative, 
but it kind of is to the experience of watching it at least i think it's kind of an all right story until i would say maybe the last episode or two where it actually becomes really really interesting and there's there are some really cool things going on i think the actual regeneration is one of the best in the whole series mm. and that kind of, i think that really elevates it for me so i would say i fall on the positive side for this one but i have some reservations which we will hash through no doubt hash through hash out yeah um better yeah it's it's weird because i i feel like for all the things that i'm critical about in this story i probably shouldn't still overall have liked say be saying that i liked it but i did i enjoyed <laughs> it yeah it was i i, I did I did think that it was an interesting impetus for a regeneration in that it kind of is because of the Doctor's greed and his potential to become like the the Great One, I think mm. they call it. The Great One, yeah. So it kind of um, links the fact that he's having to regenerate with something that he needs to improve upon in himself. Mm-hmm. Which seems appropriate, I guess, with the idea of reincarnation, although I didn't think yes. of that until yeah. now, but with the whole Buddhist context. Mm. The Buddhist context is a, a variable thing, <laughs> mm. in my estimation, because it also brings some really weird racism into things. Yes. And we also get a drive-by racism from Joe Grant with her letter from oh, yeah. wherever they're supposed to be in South America. I think specifically the Amazon, but so where you, in the Amazon? You get to find out that Joe is also doing some racism. She is, yeah. And environmental work probably with yes. the fella from Oh that's Yeah, that's true actually. She's um she's acting out the um the message of well not the message, the like Thing that invasion of the dinosaurs was maybe about yeah mm. with her fella yeah mr joe <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah i i also don't love the whole thing with tommy but we can maybe mm. get into that yeah in in a bit but yeah um who hasn't we need, um, we need jacob's takes um i mean they're not they're not particularly particularly spicy takes or anything <laughs> But uh, yeah, um, no, I mean, I yeah, I also have mixed feelings about this. I was also saying off microphone that um, this had a near mythic status before I saw it, with it being the last Pertwee story. I'd kind of seen bits of it before I watched it, a lot of the really good bits, and so my expectations were kind of quite high. And. In a lot of ways, it doesn't deliver on them. In some ways, it does. Um, so, as you were saying, I also really like the way the regeneration's executed. Not not so much like the effect itself, but like the emotional yeah. stuff around it. I also really like this idea of the Doctor being brought down by his own hubris and mm. how that kind of plays into some of the other themes. Some of the stuff that's less good is the 12-minute chase which didn't even need to be in because the the villain just disappears after this 12-minute chase, so none of it needs to happen, which admittedly Barry Letts has admitted was a silly mistake. The dodgy CSO... I mean, I suppose it wouldn't be the last Pertwee story without tons of dodgy CSO, mm. but, um, yeah, in some of the later episodes on the planet, that's not great. 
the spiders themselves aren't fantastic, but also what else would you expect really from the time? Like how, what else could they have done? I don't know. So yeah, like I have a lot of positive stuff to say. I also got a lot of negative stuff. Again, I agree with everything you said about the casual racism and also the stuff about Tommy is deeply problematic, I think, yeah. as well. Yeah. So, I hear what you were saying about the chase <laughs> sequence. However, I enjoyed every second of it. I was laughing. Like, I don't know what kind of mood oh, was I was in. But I was, I was laughing non-stop. I enjoyed everything. It was a bit like... Um, it's something out of like Garth Marenghi's Dark. Place. It is actually, yeah. Um, but I enjoyed the variety of vehicles that were deployed. Yeah. I enjoyed the further away shots where you can see from the dodgy wigs that it's not the actors that are on the like speedboats or mm. whatever. And it was hilarious, and I had a really good time watching it. Something- like it was completely unnecessary, but there's been similarly unnecessary chase sequences that I have enjoyed a lot less. (laughs) Something that I also find really hilarious about it is the way in which all the vehicles just seem to be like lined up. It's like a relay race. It's like, oh look, there's a hovercraft here. I'll just get in there. (laughs) I think the hovercraft is maybe my favourite. Although they have the Hoomobile for a bit, don't they? Yeah, they do, yeah. Which suddenly starts flying. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, because I said, like, I was like, I was waiting for it to fly, and we like you couldn't remember if it did or not. Yeah. But then, like suddenly, like the end of the movie Grease, mm. they just yeah, launched. Yeah. In- <laughs> and it's got that that great shot where it's like to convey that it's flying. You've got um, the brig, and I think Benton just going like this is impossible <laughs> to replicate on audio, but just like following their eye line going off and and looking like. I'd like to mention that Benton has been great throughout all, like, yes. throughout both the both the yeah, stories yeah. that he's been in. Yeah, there's um, not much Benton this this season, sadly. He there does some good bits on in... tea making, doesn't he, or coffee making? Yes, yeah. yes. There was some good bits in um, Invasion of the Dinosaurs where he was getting like a bit cheeky, and then the Briggs like, "But oh. don't, but don't be like that again." And he's like, "I forgot oh, oh, to mention oh. Benton's pins, the the glee he feels." When he's putting the pins in an invasion of oh. the dinosaurs and they're different colours for each dinosaur. That's also That's important. the story where he he demonstrates his um his excellent way of keeping his hat like stored under his like shoulder strap thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it looks like he's carrying a towel around for the whole story. It's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I just wanted to point out that I haven't forgotten that he was there. Yeah. yeah. He was just exemplary as ever. A good map, but this is like Yates's arc. Mm. Yeah, mm. this is this he's is having an arc. He is an arc. In space. <laughs> he's not prepared, but he's <laughs> having one. <laughs> no, he's not. He's stumbled into a meditation retreat somehow. Yeah, he stumbled into a redemption arc. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's he's curiously kind of like like he's in the story quite a bit, but he's. He does that thing that Richard Franklin does where he's kind of present, but not quite in the scene. Mm. It's hard to describe, but like, he kind of wears mostly the same expression throughout the story, no matter what's happening. Uh, whether he's about to drive into like an illusory tractor, or uh, he's like, just seen some spiders appear, or... um. He's just walking around the monastery minding his own business. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's accusing Sarah Jane of using her feminine wiles. Oh yeah, he oh, does. Yes, he does that. Yes. He certainly does that. Yeah, that's certainly a thing he says. That was funny because then he later uses the exact same tactic, and we were like, "Oh, it's Yates using his feminine wiles." Yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to think. This I feel like there's so much to potentially talk about in this story because mm. it's just like lots mm. going on. Shall we talk about Tommy? Yeah, let's talk uh, about Tommy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I was a bit confused about what he was doing at the, like, monastery? Yeah, monastery. Um, initially, but I guess he works there. Mm. Yeah, it's not super clear. I, I think was, he does. I was joking that he lived in that cupboard that he goes into, but I think a more charitable interpretation is that that's just where he keeps his, like, janitor yeah stuff. would hope so and yeah. he actually lives with his mum who he mentions at one point oh yeah that's true um probably but initially i was like oh okay i guess they're showing a character with like learning difficulties and that's just who he is and it's a bit like mm. stereotypical and weird it's yeah there's a few weird things like he has the the of mice and men thing where he likes pretty things Mm. Uh, and even the way he speaks isn't really consistent mm. like he refers to himself in the third person as both Tom and Tommy yeah, yeah. which is kind of weird um, there's, a co- there's a couple of other little things like that but yeah um, go on I know where you're going but yeah so I was just sort of thinking okay they're just showing a different kind of character that's cool but then so when he has contact with the crystal that Mm. enhances the mind expands the mind i can't remember Uh, yeah but it basically explicitly has raised his iq because Mm. he's then reading a book on intelligence quotient stuff yeah which is like not how anything works because iq tests only test a very specific kind of uh way of thinking but also it was just really like it was just really quite upsetting as well when like Sarah Jane is saying to him, "You're normal now, Tommy." Yeah. yeah. And it's like there's a there's like a, a response he says he has where he says like, "Oh, I hope not," um, but it doesn't really mitigate that. He also speaks posher once he. Uh... Yes, he yeah. does. He just loses his accent, yeah. which is yeah another interesting way of the interesting. Aspect of the way accents are portrayed throughout the part of the year. I feel like it's that thing with the Barry Letts Terence Dix era again, where they seem to think that they're doing something good and progressive, and I think they're they're genuinely trying to Mm. do something good, but it's just not. Mm. Like it's Mm. it's just it's just not that at all, and they just. It's just another kind of misfire, like Monster of Peladon. Mm. And yeah. again, unfortunately, it would have been better had they not tried. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because the implication is just, like, that there is something wrong with him and that mm. he gets better rather than just, yeah. this is a legitimate way yeah. to live your life. I think somebody, it might be Campo, actually explicitly refers to it as him being healed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which, yeah. Dodgy. And yeah. I know it's not quite the same thing but there is a similar thing in Greatest Show in the Galaxy where there's a guy who like mm. seems I don't know how to describe it but 
he seems like he might have learning difficulties, but it turns out that he's just being like mind controlled. He's like it's it's from like contact with the like eldritch beings at mm. the center of the the thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, I I think that I mean that's not great either, but it, at least that's not like that's not it's not that he like literally has learning difficulties and then doesn't anymore. Yeah, it's yeah. like there's something else that then goes away that's not that but i just it's just really it's just particularly frustrating that he has to that tommy has to change in this massive way Mm. to be able to be seen as like i don't know a legitimate force for good able to do things that are useful like he does things that are he, like he, you can see that he's trying to help mm. earlier, but then they're like, "Oh, but now mm. he can really do things," and it's just. I think it's even worse if you follow the the chain of logic of this being like a, a Buddhist parable, uh, which is the way that Barry Letts was always very keen for it to be seen, mm. because that suggests that what happens to Tommy is that he like, maybe not quite becomes enlightened, but at least sort of takes a step on the road to enlightenment and that's not only supremely dodgy but like from my incredibly limited and like very very um superficial knowledge of buddhism strikes me as actually kind of wrong-headed mm. as well but yeah i don't think that from my again not yeah. super thorough understanding i don't think that that there would be anything to limit him from achieving that as he is anyway, no. like at the start of the story, yeah. I don't think that. I'm sure that people who are practicing Buddhists would probably say that the that it does it wouldn't be a barrier. Yeah, and like I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting that this was the intention, mm. but I think once the with all of the architecture in place with the rest of the story, um, for it to be seen for the whole story to be read in this way, it kind of makes sense to feed it through that lens and unfortunately that makes it even worse Mm. 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 yeah it's just pretty uncomfortable so is the portrayal of choji yeah i don't really know what happened because the is it kampo who is yeah the abbot yeah I know that Abbott isn't technically correct. No, Rinpoche is the, the term that's used, I think. I, I, again, know nothing about Tibetan Buddhism, so I'm very open to correction on this. But um... I like to assume that the Abbott is maybe his like Time Lord name, like the Master or the <laughs> yeah. Doctor, and it just got, the wires got crossed, even though he's like got this other profession that he's doing, but that's his, I don't know. But yeah, he doesn't, they haven't gone for like a, he's not really doing anything different from playing like an old like white guy which is fine yeah he's actually he reminds me a lot of the um the night at the end of the last crusade mm. yeah it might even be that guy i didn't look that up but i don't know if just the guy playing choji just turned up and was like no guys i've got this covered and then just did this really like racist yeah thing, yeah or what but it's it's like it's just uncomfortable to yeah watch. i like it's it's weird because it's not the the character isn't particularly portrayed in any like patronizing way really. Mm. It's not talents of Wing Chiang. Mm. It's a low bar, but it's not talents of Wing Chiang. Well, when I first saw his character, I thought it was going to go that way, and I thought that maybe it was going to turn out that, like 
the people running the organization were yeah. secretly evil yeah. or something. But it's actually not that at all. So it's not bad in that sense. It's just a weird acting choice. Yeah. And it just makes me think that, you know, when Time Lords do this projection thing, mm. it must just be that, like, it's like a poison chalice where they can have this incredible power, but their projection will always be, like, some sort of slightly offensive stereotype. And they just have to, like, hope that it's not, like, that bad. And... Yeah. I think maybe that's why in Logopolis the the Watcher is, like, completely kind of whited out. So, yeah. Because the, the Doctor, like projected projected it and I was like oh no 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 don't want anyone seeing that it's like in a really offensive stereotype of logopolis dwellers <laughs> and he's like oh no <laughs> it's um a really offensive stereotype of peter davison <laughs> oh. <laughs> i don't know what that would even look like no. uh, a small child with blonde hair uh, <laughs> uh, yeah i guess it's that racist portrayal is I think it's symptomatic of the way in which race was handled in pretty much all 1970s television, mm. uh, barring a few exceptions. Usually stereotyped, very often white people mm-hmm. in makeup rather than actually getting someone yeah. you know who is actually you know like Tibetan or whatever um, to play the part. And I guess that's why, like you were saying, like he's not. In terms of the way he's written, mm. like he's not the story doesn't like doesn't resort to stereotypes yeah. particularly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the way that it's acted and also like presumably the direction as well yeah. is very much yeah in the mode. Yeah. So it's it's kind of strange. It's a weird overlap of yeah a not particularly stereotypical script and then this very mm. very yeah caricatured way of portraying yeah. somebody and I think that's what's kind of scary about it is the fact that even from someone who is you know like Barry Letts is kind of sees himself as a liberal hmm. that it still falls into those stereotypes because they're hmm. so common at the time hmm. and I think that's something that's really kind of frightening yeah um, is the fact that they were so prevalent that even a, a you know a slightly more pro- progressive portrayal still falls into that I think, in a way, it's symptomatic of aspects of this story's attitude to Buddhism in general. Mm. Because for all that, um, you know, Barry Letts, as I've said, has, like was very keen for this to be seen as a Buddhist parable. And there's um, there's there's elements of, of that in there, most famously in Choji's line in the first episode about... Um, the young man will fade away or whatever it is and the new man will discover to his inexpressible joy that he never existed and that the, the way in which regeneration is kind of um, used as a metaphor in that way. Um, this is also the first time the word regeneration is used. There is still something kind of superficial about a lot of the these of... I, I think it's... I think it's Tatwood says that, like, this is like kind of like an M.R. James story that happens to be set in, like, uh, Buddhist monastery, or Lamastery, I think is the mm. more proper term. Uh, in that you've, you've... It's just kind of... It's more like spiritualism than anything. They, you've got, like, these strange rituals in which they may be saying an actual mantra, yeah. but they're conjuring forth some kind of demon. And now the demon in itself 
is arguable, and there, like there's a reading whereby the the spiders are like psychic demons uh, of the kind that Choji talks about. I think in, again in episode one, um, where it's more like the spiders are more like a kind of Jungian shadow than like actual big spiders. Oh, <laughs> but either way, in which case, I suppose you could see the the doctor confronting the great one as his own confrontation with um himself, mm. which he does talk about like confronting his fear and stuff. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it harks back because I suppose because originally uh, had Delgado not unfortunately passed away, even before Pertwee had announced that this would be his last story. I believe the master was penciled in to be at the end of season eleven. Oh yes, and yeah. I think that was going to be the like end of that arc. Where yeah, yeah. this has gotten slightly garbled over the years, um, but the suggestion seems to have been that the the master and the doctor would be revealed to be part of the same perso- personality, rather, uh, with the the doctor being the ego and the master being the id, and that the master would ultimately sacrifice himself to save the doctor. Obviously, that didn't happen. But I think there's an element of it still in there in the um, the Doctor's confrontation with the Great One. But that in itself is already kind of a weird mishmash of stuff where you've got like a chunk of like Freudian or Jungian psychoanalysis chucked on top of like the trappings of um, I don't know. I assume it's a particular, possibly a particularly um, Tibetan strand of Buddhism. Again, I'm not particularly up on this. Uh, I'm sure there are people out there who will know far better than I. But it, it results in this kind of strange... I don't think it, like, doesn't work particularly. I think it's fine for what it is. But as someone who knows, as I keep saying, nothing about Buddhism, but a bit about psychoanalysis. Like, I think it it does work on those levels. But at the same time, it's kind of... It's prevented from saying anything particularly deeper. And I think the comparison point that I found myself coming back to when I was thinking about it is Kinda. Mm. Because Kinda is also very, very, even more openly playing with um, Buddhist concepts. Like, several of the characters, especially the ones that Tegan meets in the kind of Mara dream state, are actually named after Buddhist concepts, as is even, like, the planet Devaloka and all kinds of other things. But Kinda, because it has that strain running through it, manages to be i think that little bit more coherent with it there was a a weird thing where chris bailey the writer of kinda and snake dance uh, was kind of a mysterious figure in fandom for years because like nobody seemed to be able to track him down for some reason and there were rumors that he was barry letts and there were also rumors that he was kate bush which is very entertaining but um i can see why that rumor got started when you, when you make that comparison, because there are, I think, similar things going on in Kinda to Blood of the Spiders. I'll talk a lot more about Kinda whenever we come to it, because I adore Kinda. And I think it's a really, really interesting episode. But I, I think Kinda just does it a lot more successfully. And actually, because I think Planet of the Spiders has a lot of things that it needs to do, and it has a lot of balls that it's juggling. So I think Kinda is a lot freer to do what it wants to do. Because uh, it doesn't have to wrap up five years of John Pertwee. I just want to say that the Brig received it in a hotel in Brighton from a young lady called Doris. Mm. Uh, as is revealed in the first mm. episode. Yes. And I feel like this needs to go down in history. 
as 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 something that has occurred, mm-hmm. and you can make of it what you will. I especially like how you didn't clarify what it was. I mean, the conversation revolves around a watch, so maybe it's that, but maybe it was something else. I mean, I don't. I don't want to make any assumptions either way. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will accept the brig. No matter what. <laughs> mm. Oh, there are some great subtitles in the story um, on the DVD. I've got um, Spiders Mumbling in Agreement, Warbling Intensifies, and uh, Bethany, I know you had one. I've of unfortunately that. got Oriental Music Continues, of course. which is from the bit at the beginning, I think, when they're watching. Uh, Sherazadi the dancer. Oh yeah, which um, is which is interesting because I think Orientalism continues could be a good subtitle for the entire story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I couldn't remember where that was from, but I'm pretty sure it's that bit. And I think not you're any right. Of yeah, the later Orientalism. <laughs> yeah, the the scene where the brig is fascinated by an exotic dancer, mm-hmm. and they also, if you look at it, appear to be sitting next to Ronnie Corbett. So that's nice. <laughs> Um, what a beautiful afternoon they were having. Yeah. It's a nice date. Now listen to me. Listen. I haven't got much time left. What you're trying to do is impossible. If you complete that circuit, the energy will build up and up until it cannot be contained. You will destroy yourself. You'll waste the little time remaining to you. Even now the cave of crystal is destroying the cells of your body. Shall we move on to talk about the regeneration, or is there anything else um, in any of the other five episodes that's worth talking about? I don't think so. I don't know that I actually have that much to say about the regeneration either. I have things. Okay, would you want to say your things? <laughs> um, basically, there's. A, I think regenerations are interesting because, on the one hand, because uh, especially from this point on, and well, actually before this as well, but a regeneration gets because it's essentially a death has to be framed on some level as failure. And in some ways, like, that's stronger in some than others. Like, usually they will try to mix failure with victory on some level or another. Like, the War Games, I think, is a strong example because the War Games, the Doctor does manage to triumph over um, the the Warlord and his, his friends, mm. but he can only do so by summoning the Time Lords and, like, giving himself into their custody. Uh, Caves of Androzani, I think, is also a strong example because the Doctor succeeds in what he's trying to do, which is save Perry. But, like, famously, the Doctor accomplishes nothing in that story. All he does is get chewed up by Androzani Minor, uh, and the planet just kills him. I think, like, even um, something like The End of Time, I think. I hate the regeneration in The End of Time, but. I kind of like the way it's originally framed as, like, the Doctor having to face up to his own hubris mm. uh, and eventually, ultimately just sacrifice himself for one individual, having faced down all of the Time Lords and that kind of thing, which I actually think is a really nice touch. And I think this one, one of the reasons I really like this regeneration in particular is that I think it really hits the sweet spot between failure and triumph. Especially because uh, the Doctor's face-off with the Great One is actually maybe Pertwee's best acting performance Mm. in some ways. Mm. 
because it's really affecting. I mean, the third Doctor more than any other is kind of the 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 calm, unruffled one who like can sweep aside a load of guards with a single high, and who like will resist any kind of mental domination and and that kind of thing. Unruffled is actually a terrible word to use of the third Doctor because he's very ruffled, but hyper ruffled. Yes, and so. Funnily enough, all of that, which is something that some people that really don't like about the Third Doctor, really feeds into this one scene where suddenly he is almost literally brought low, ultimately literally brought low, but he's forced to like succumb to mental domination. He like she just all she does is force him to like turn in a circle. But uh, because of all of that context, because we know that he is the strong man, as it were, it's really affecting. Seeing him do that, and Pertwee like plays a blinder of making it look really painful as well. I'm not totally clear on why uh, the Great One knows Pop Goes the Weasel, by the way, but we can leave that one aside. But I think where the victory comes in is really, really interesting, because I think it a little bit ties back to what I was saying about the Tenth Doctor's regeneration. Because the Doctor ends up standing before his enemy, the Great One, the one who, at this point, he is going to die. Like, he's absorbed enough radiation that he's going to die. But he stays longer to plead with her not to destroy herself. Mm. And so there's this strange kind of existential victory there, I think. The Doctor kind of, for all of his, like, his greed for knowledge that has, has forced him into this, he proves himself to be willing to, essentially, to a greater or lesser extent, give up his own life. Actually, in the same way that the fifth Doctor does as well, um, by going into the, the nest to get the antidote for Perry. And in this case, even more so, because in both the fifth and the tenth Doctors are saving a friend, whereas the third Doctor is putting himself in even more danger, through even more pain, to try and save an enemy, mm. who, by this point, possibly has already killed him. But he's willing to, still willing to put himself on the line. And people, um, especially people who aren't fond of the Third Doctor, often say that they don't. They they find him to be counter to the kind of the moral core of the character in certain ways. And while I disagree, I can uh, I can see where they're coming from uh, to a greater or lesser extent. But here, I think, for me, is the point where more than any other, he exemplifies the virtues that are all that we admire at the character at they're most admirable mm. nobility is a kind of a word with interesting connotations with regard to the doctor and particularly the, the third doctor but i think here applying that concept to the doctor is kind of at its least problematic because this is the doctor sort of as role model but not as role model in the kind of in the way that pertwee maybe had been up to this point and uh, where he just kind of had the answer to things and was able to kind of to solve problems easily, but a role model in someone who is ma- willing to make a very difficult and literally painful choice because he values life. Mm. It's also interesting, actually, that Pertwee, even more than most doctors, is very defined by his kind of his ability with language, his ability to talk his way around situations and that kind of thing. And he dies without finishing his last sentence. For all the indulgence of a lot of this story. I think it's one of the things that's really remarkable about it is how much it kind of, it undermines the almost untouched strength that had been at the core of that character. 
Mm. So yeah, that's my comment, my unilateral commentary on um, on the third Doctor's regeneration. Is there anything else to say then before we move on to the rankings? I did realize one thing. Yes. I think the reason why the Great One knows Pop Goes the Weasel is because it was originally an Earth Spider. And all spiders know mm. Pop Goes the Weasel, oh, but of course, Ultimate yes. Pop. Makes sense. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm. famous among spider kind mm. on it's Earth the, and in space. It's the bit of human culture that she retained through those 400 and whatever years. Yeah, that's what kept her going through the rough times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's, okay. what I, that's what I took away. <laughs> so... Let's finish up with our rankings then. I think the way we've done it every time so far is that uh, we do it in kind of this order that I am gesturing. So uh, I'll go first. As is now tradition, at the very bottom of my list, right down in the centrally heated mines, no. is Monster <laughs> of Peladon. Um, yeah, everything to say about this story has been said. It's not very good. And it's very very best it has tiny glimmers of potential but for the most part it's incredibly drawn out it's just a mess of plotting it's just not very good number four death to the daleks which is also a little bit of a mess in terms of plotting maybe has one or two ideas that could have elevated it but doesn't quite and similarly to Monster of Peladon, doesn't quite draw those ideas out of the morass of the whole thing and swamps them with Daleks for no reason and just ends up being very, very bland and unmemorable, I think. Number three is Planet of the Speedways, which is like probably five decent episodes, maybe with some dodgy stuff and some that are way too drawn out and all the kind of things we've been saying and then one actually really rather good episode at the end um, with a regeneration that I actually find very moving and very very interesting as I've just been saying number two is Invasion of the Dinosaurs which I as I've said like more than a lot of people seem to it has its flaws but it's it's way too long again and quite padded out uh, but it's a it's an interesting idea. It's got a really superb, I think, first episode, and it's it's got a lot a lot of interesting things going on. It's got some interesting politics in some ways, and I I just find it quite enjoyable overall. And then number one is the Time Warrior, which I think it kind of the Time Warrior in a lot of other seasons probably wouldn't be my number one if it were in like probably even the season's either side of it. It would be like middle of my list, probably. Uh, it's a good story. It's a fun story. But it's not an absolute standout. And I think maybe that in itself is kind of proof that the show at this point, um, for all that I enjoy the the Pertwee era overall, it's a, an indication that the, the show had kind of run its course. That... It really needed a revitalization if this was the best it could do. And for all that, that revitalization will come largely at the hands of the writer of The Time Warrior. I think it's a good story. It's um, it sets up some interesting things and um, that will be that the show will go back to 
sadly Iron Gron is not one of those things, but I would love I I he wasn't in the series twelve trailer that released very recently, <laughs> but and uh, dating this recording slightly. But I'm hoping he's gonna turn up somewhere. They're gonna release a poster of him with like half a galaxy Yeah, yeah. Bottom half. I'm excited. Yeah. And it'll say space for all. Even vaguely med- mid medieval robber barons. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, for all that I was sounding a little bit disheartened that Kieron put Monster of Peladon at the bottom of his list, it's like absolutely at the bottom of mine as well. I nearly thought I'd talked myself up on it when we were speaking about it before. However, on reflection, I think that just because it's not as bad as some Doctor's worst stories doesn't necessarily mean that it's better than more competent episode, more competent stories in this series. Hmm. And also, although there were a lot of moments that I enjoyed, perhaps for not the intended reasons, but that I did enjoy, I still wouldn't necessarily want to sit down and watch it again. Hmm. And I think that not by much, but by a little bit, I would prefer to rewatch Death to the Daleks, which is my next on my list. I don't really have much to add to what we said before. It's kind of average to below average. There wasn't really anything exceptional about it and there was some things that were less than enjoyable, but it was fine. Then my next on my list is uh, Planet of the Spiders. You may notice some similarities between this ranking and the one that's come before it, so I won't dwell too much. But aside from having the most astounding chase sequence I have ever been blessed to witness <laughs> with my own eyes. It also had some quite interesting ideas and um, I think it was although it is drawn out as all the six parts are, I felt that less than some of the other ones mm. even less than in my number two story which is Invasion of the Dinosaurs which I think I felt the padding episode, episode five, a mm. lot more. But I enjoyed it a lot overall. Um, I thought that there was some interesting ideas. I thought the dinosaurs were fine. Like, I, I liked them even though they objectively looked quite shoddy, I suppose. But they were fun and I treasured them. In number one <laughs> is, of course, the Time Warrior. I think really my the, the principle of my ranking as I try to always have it to some extent is just how much fun I had whilst I was watching them and the Time Warrior I think I enjoyed all of it. It wasn't too long which helped. I had a laugh and I felt heartened by the scenes I witnessed for the most part because they were funny <laughs> and that's my ranking. Well... You may notice a pattern here. Hmm. So, number five. We're also down in the heat of the mines with the monster of Peladon. Um, I'm literally not going to add anything to this. It's terrible for all the reasons that I've already said. Um, <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say about it. Four is Death to the Daleks. There was not much in it. There was one point where I was considering putting it bottom and then I thought about everything that was in Monster of Peladon. And how I couldn't even bring myself to re-watch it, which I've done with most of these. And so I decided, no. Death of the Daleks is just, as I was saying, it just feels like a marketing ploy. It doesn't get to the core of anything that it should do. 
and I think it replicates a lot of the issues that I have with Dalek stories later on where they're simply used to get an audience and that's that's it so yeah three is Planet of the Spiders because it's kind of a mixed bag the regeneration is very well done I think there's a lot of other stuff in it that isn't so well done but uh, yeah all that stuff around it all the build up to it with you know the Doctor's hubris causing the regeneration and so on I think all that's good Two is Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> I did wonder if this might happen, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think there's only one way to rank these, really. Um, but yeah, um, I quite like Invasion of the Dinosaurs. It is too long, but um, yeah, as as you said, first episode is great in particular. I think a lot of the kind of subterfuge stuff going on is really good. Um, and makes up for the slightly shoddy dinosaurs, which are kind of entertaining as well, though. And uh, number one Way. is the Time Warrior. Way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was entertaining. Again, as you were saying, I think this is, for me, it's quite a weak season. Uh, it's certainly the weakest John Pertwee season, which is yeah. why this is top. And that's not to say it's not enjoyable, it mm. is, but. You know, compared to other seasons, this would not mm. be. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, it has lines such as chicken hearted knaves and also the description of the doctor as a long shanked rascal with a mighty nose, which, you know, I feel like that elevates it very high for me. So, I yeah. mean, <laughs> I'm not going to lie, before we even started recording, I went to see if I could find that clip to use to introduce the story and I did so fantastic a consensus yeah. yes I think that's the first time we've had exactly the same yeah, yeah I don't know if it'll happen again really it may not do we've had very similar before yeah we've been, I think we've been broadly similar for the most part before but um, yeah I, I don't know if it'll happen again but in a way I think it's kind of it does bespeak the fact that like I enjoy this season overall, but a lot of it just kind of isn't interesting enough to provoke the kind of debate that might have us yeah, rank yeah. things differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is now I I I'm not completely down on this season. Like I know yeah, at some point I can't remember where exactly it is, but I know Elizabeth Sandifer refers to it after the Time Warrior as like a string of turkeys, which I think is unfair. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't go that far. Mm. Um but I do think that there is a sense, as I've been saying, of something kind of running dry, of an approach that has reached the end of its kind of of its time, in the way that like approaches to the show do, in the way um, that like I would argue that Russell T Davies does in series four, mm. that I think Moffat does in series seven, but then kind of manages to revitalize his approach. In a way that I think even Holmes is by season 14. Yeah. In a way that Eric Sayward is from the second story he does a script editor. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I don't think this is like... This is far from the nadir of the classic series. Like, as I've said, I think there is a basic level of competence to the Let's Sticks era. You know, the when Terrence Sticks uh, unfortunately passed away a few months ago, the the word that people kept using of him and the word that he had apparently said that he wanted to be remembered as was professional. Mm-hmm. 
that's basically what he was as script editor. He, like, from all accounts, kind of dashed around tidying up everyone's scripts a little bit. As opposed to, I'm going to contrast it with Holmes again, because that's what I'm just doing this this episode. But, like, where Holmes would, like, take a script he wasn't that fond of and spend ages rewriting it until it had to be put out under a pseudonym because it wasn't by the original author anymore. Dick's more, like, nips and tucks at scripts to try and, like, get them to a kind of base level of it'll work. And I think that characterizes a lot of the Pertwee era. And the worst you can say of this season in some ways is that that fades a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, unless anyone has anything to add to some kind of round up? Just, I guess, that it was... Although we all fell into the same pattern, it was in a way surprisingly difficult to rank them just because they're all kind of quite good, but with flaws. Mm. Um, it was quite, I think, I think overall very good. Well, uh, overall good. Yeah. That was a very mm. mediocre comment. <laughs> I mean, I, I had I had a similar thing to you um, where I, both of you in fact, where I, I hovered over like, Death to the Daleks and Monster of Peladon nearly swapped places for me once or twice. Mm. But overall, I I kind of had that ranking more or less in mind even before I'd rewatched some of the stories. Mm. And it more or less held true. So, um, thank you for joining us on this, this romp. <laughs> this extended chase sequence. Um, <laughs> our, our next episode is actually slightly up in the air at the moment depending on how things how things certain things fall we may be changing our schedule slightly but we will our next episode will certainly be on the new series and one way or another so i hope you can join us for that until then i have been kieran i have been bethan i've been jacob thank you very much